All right, let's go ahead and stand. We're going to read from Colossians chapter 2. Starting in verse 6, it says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we confess that we are broken vessels in need of your mercy and grace, in need of your uh, son's blood to cover our sins, and we thank you that by grace, through faith, that we can have the forgiveness of sins, that we can have new life in your son, Jesus. We thank you that you are a gracious God who loves us so much, who is with us every single step of the way, who sees us in our brokenness and comes and rescues us. Thank you, Lord, that you heal us, that we are the jars of clay, Lord, and that um, you are gracious to give us your truth and your gospel to spread to others. And we do pray, God, that today that we would hear from you, that your spirit would continue to be with us, your spirit would continue to abide in us, and that you would give us ears to hear, and that you would do this for your glory. Amen. All right, I'm going to tell you a, a little history lesson here about a Russian statesman and nobleman whose name was Gregory Potemkin. And he was one of the many uh, lovers that the Empress Catherine the Great of Russia had. And he planned and successfully executed the conquest of the lands of Crimea and kind of handed it over to her as a gift, so to speak. Well, a few years later, she wanted to tour uh, the land that she now had. And so uh, because of budget constraints and just general bad failing on Potemkin's part, um, the land really hadn't done anything or produced much. But he had an idea. And so what he did was she was going to be coming down um, on one of the rivers, and so he set up these basically fake villages. Just like a Hollywood movie set, essentially. And put them along the shore, and he got um, peasants from the, the inner part of the country and brought them to the shores, brought live animals too, and had them line the shores so that when she came down on the river, you know, they were there waving to her and clapping and applauding, even had some fireworks for her. And once she passed that section, then they would break down the set and then rush them down the river past where she was and set it up again. And that, if you ever have heard the term uh, Potemkin Village, that's the term that's used when people talk about something that uh, appears to be a certain way but basically is, is fake. And so <clears throat> it's interesting because Catherine thought one thing because everything appeared to be fine. And we can be tricked into believing things because initially it all looks good on the surface and seems to check out. One of the things that we're being commanded here to 
is to be careful about the philosophy of the world. We're not just talking about philosophy. Some of us probably took philosophy in college. I took philosophy in college. You know how you can tell a person who who's, uh, has a philosophy degree? They'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in college, they were some of the most annoying people to talk to because um, no one can really understand philosophy when you read it. They just act like they can, okay? Um, <clears throat> but the philosophy uh, that, that the scriptures are warning against is a, is a philosophy that does not comport with true Christianity. So see what we're commanded here in verse 8. We're told to see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Now, how many of you have heard of um, the new age in terms of like a religion? Okay. Um, how many of you heard of new thought? Yeah, not as many. Um, it's, it's been around actually for a while. Most people, as the hands just displayed, aren't aware of it. Um, but that's how these teachings work. It's very similar to New Age. We're going to look at it in a moment. Um, but people can be around these things. And as you're going to see, as we look at some of the new thought, which is similar to the New Age, you're going to recognize some of the things that you've heard that try to blend in and act like Christianity, but actually aren't. So our command here is in verse 8. See to it. It's actually the second command in the book of Colossians that we're given. And the idea is, is to be on guard, to be aware, to look carefully. Why? Because there's a lot of Potemkin villages out there. They seem to be one thing, but they're really not. So we don't want to be duped. This section on new thought, um, I'm indebted to Frank Turek's website, Cross-Examined. He, he helps out with the Stand to Reason and the um, Student Apologetics Conference that we go to. He's an excellent apologist, and he had some really good info on this subject. Uh, many people will use the term New Age and New Thought interchangeably because of the, some of the crossover and in information that there is. Uh, it basically, the core belief is pretty much similar, and it's this. You are good, and you are God. Um, the New Age can even sometimes be used as an umbrella term for both of them, um, but they are different. It's the new thought, and that's why I'm going to kind of focus on that today for a little bit. It's the new thought that has crept its way into churches and tends to dupe Christians. Most, again, as the hands showed, are aware of the New Age. Most, as the hands showed, are not aware of the new thought. If you remember anything about the new thought, then just remember this one thing. Uh, they try to take Christianity, and they will take Christianity and make it into a metaphysical Christianity. So beyond, beyond just the physicalness, um, they'll turn it into something completely different using metaphysics. Now, there's a difference between Christian metaphysics, that's legit, and metaphysical Christianity. Here's the thing. Uh, when we talk about new thought, it's not concerned about the Jesus who walked on the earth, the literal man. New thought is not concerned about that. Why? Because that's focused on the physical. It focuses on the metaphysical. So the adherents feel they are beyond the physical. It's more about the, the Christ energy that's behind the physical person of Christ. So it is very Gnostic in its approach. 
Remember, in our study of Gnosticism, is the physical good or bad? Bad, right? Is the spiritual good or bad? Good. So you end up with uh, no emphasis on Jesus the man who walked the earth, but rather this focus on everything like esoteric. Sometimes you'll hear this phrase from people who adhere to it or even adhere to the New Age. I'm spiritual, but not religious. Well, religious is really focused on concrete things. If you say, like, I'm a religious person, you're adhering to likely uh, one of the major world religions, which focuses on facts and information. The spiritual is focused more on ethereal things, less objective and more subjective in the new age and the new thought. Um, So let's talk a little bit about these different terms that you'll hear people use that mean different things. Now, the cults always take words, words that we mean one thing, and then and put different meaning into those words. And that's, in part, sometimes how people get duped. For many years, uh, the Mormons didn't use the, the term Trinity, and now they're using that term. But it doesn't mean the historical definition of the Trinity. It means what, what they put into that de- definition. Well, when you start to fall apart with words, then you can't really have meaningful conversation. So here's the thing. When, when the adherents of new thought use the term Christ, they actually see Christ and Jesus as two different things. Jesus was the man, and Christ is the inner divinity that all mankind can awaken to. You hear the term Christ's consciousness. So this idea that we have this inner divinity, and Jesus showed us how it can be done. He obtained the Christ consciousness, and if we follow his example, we can obtain that Christ consciousness too. In this way, you are the I am just as much as Jesus is. When it comes to God, it is not a he. God is an it. And he's a force or a spiritual source that pours out abundance and prosperity to those who know how to wield its power. Now, does that sound familiar? Pours out abundance and prosperity to to those who know how to wield its power. So, in in this um, new thought, God has a power to be tapped into and used for your benefit. The thing with new thought is that it is not pantheistic, which is what the new age is. Pantheistic is everything is God, but panentheistic is everything pan, that's every or all, pan, everything um, has God in it. So panentheism, God is in everything. When it comes to sin, there's really only one, maybe two sins, and the only sin is your own ignorance of your (laughs) self-divinity. Um, it's hard to say it with a straight face because it just sounds so foolish. But the only ignorance is the ignorance of your self-divinity and remaining in this false belief of yourself. The only mess up you're committing, the only sin, which you wouldn't hear that word, but the only sin is that you don't realize you're divine. What about atonement and salvation? Well, salvation is really an awakening 
to a higher level of consciousness, that Christ consciousness. It's realizing that you are self-divine. That is the salvation, that awakening, if you will. And salvation is found in finding your true self. In regards to evil, hell, Satan, none of these are literal. Okay, none of them are literal, but rather are states of mind. Anything that's considered evil, even shooting up a school, it's because the person is in their false self. They just haven't realized their true self yet, which would be their divine self or the self-divinity that they have. Why do we have pain, suffering, evil? It's because humanity is unaware of its inner divinity. And therefore, it's asleep to its true self. Now, if they ever use the term hell or even heaven, it would be a, a state of being in terms of the person might be, sometimes we even use it ourselves somewhat colloquially, like the person is, is going through a living hell or something like that. Not that we should necessarily say it like that, but people will say something like that. That would be the only sense that, that the hell that they have is, is a self-made because, again, they haven't attained to their true self. The thing about New Thought is it very much uses the Bible. It very much uses many of these terms. It just gives it different, um, different meaning. So with the Bible, um, those who have the spiritual know-how are the ones who can interpret it. Uh, people that wrote the Bible only understood it in the time and place that they lived, but we understand it more now because we have grown spiritually and have come to a place of our Christ consciousness. That's what they would say. In terms of faith and prosperity, uh, New Thought is very well known for its concept of positive thinking. Uh, the power of, of positive thinking. You, you just go to any local bookstore and there's a whole section of self-help books. One of the things is what? Positive thinking. So we can wield power through the faith that we have. So faith is not seen as, as putting your trust in Jesus, but faith is the power that can make things happen. Again, there's aspects of, of, uh, of false teaching in Christianity that have that belief. So, New Thought teaches that God only allows good things to happen. If we have enough faith, we can proclaim health and wealth and it must manifest itself in our lives. Probably the most popular new thought belief is what's called the law of attraction. Anyone heard of that? The law of attraction? It's a philosophy su suggesting that positive thoughts bring positive results into a person's life, while negative thoughts bring negative outcomes. Your words have power and can create. God is a creative force. Since you're a manifestation of God, you're able to create with your words as well. On and on, on and on and on we could go. Um, three differences between New Thought and New Age. Again, the New Thought claims to be Christian in origin, and it uses Christian terms, where New Age usually distances itself from Christianity. Um, it might, I mean, New Age is kind of a syncretism of all sorts of religions, uh, but New Age will more distance itself from Christianity. New Thought will 
really claim Christianity or large aspects of it in terms of the t- terminology, in terms of claiming the scripture. New Age is heavily influenced by theosophy, uh, which New Thought does not claim to be. And again, New Age is pantheistic in its worldview, whereas New Thought is panentheistic. So even though there's differences, um, the two almost seem to overlap. So you'll hear that a lot. But here's the thing. Both, depending on where you're at in your walk with the Lord, both can be alluring, and both are most definitely deceiving. They both elevate man and demote God. That's bad. They elevate man and demote God. And new thought has been a cloud of deception in the church for quite a while. Uh, If you think about it, even something like the interpretation of Scripture, um, and and probably unknowingly, I have in the past used a similar phrase where it's like, you know, you're in a Bible study and you read the verse, and then you point to someone and you're like, what does that mean to you? Well, think about that for a moment. What you're suggesting is if there's 20 people in the Bible study, there's 20 different things that it can mean. But how many meanings does this scripture have? Just one, right? So <clears throat> I learned early on that that's really not, a, it just gives a, a false impression of what the scripture is saying. A better thing would be like, how does that verse apply to you? Okay? Because the scripture can say one thing, but have many applications. It can have one point that it is clearly pointing out to you, but then it's like, okay, now how do I apply that to my life? How do I apply that to how I handle my finances? How do I apply that to how I share my faith? How do I apply that to uh, raising my kids? All those different applications, but still only one meaning. Think about new thought creeping into Christianity in terms of what we hear as the word faith movement, right? We can speak things into existence. That comes straight from the new thought, straight from it. Uh, Even the positive thinking, think positive and positive things will happen. I mean, there's nowhere in scripture, nowhere in scripture. Now, does the scripture command us to be joyful? Yes. Does it command us to walk in the spirit? Yes. Does it command us to have the fruits of the spirit? Yes. But it does not guarantee that positive things will happen by doing that right? I mean, think about Jesus. He's having the nails pounded into him. Oh, just think positive thoughts, Jesus. Good things will happen. No, some of the most um, joyful people who are believers that walk with the Lord have had some awful and horrible tragedies happen to them, right? And suffering is very much a part of the Christian life. It's very much a part of the Christian life. Also, the prosperity, prosperity gospel stems from this thinking. The focus is on God wanting good things for you. Well, there's a truth there. God wants good things for you. Guess what? He wants you to repent of your sins and to receive salvation from him. That's the best thing, right? So yes, God wants good things for you, but what happens is, is that gets twisted into God wants... The good things meaning, oh, whatever selfish things I want in my own life. 
I want a nicer car. I want more money. I want to be able to eat out whenever I want. Those type of things. It gets twisted into something like that. And God gets made out to be a force who pours out his abundance and prosperity to those who know how to wield it. It's kind of a combination of that word faith movement with the prosperity gospel movement. And it's false. Listen, I was thinking about this as I was, uh, as I was finishing up my notes today. Like, if, if there's any validity to even something like the prosperity gospel, instead of these preachers claiming it all for themselves, and I, I heard about some pastor the other day who bought his wife uh, a $200,000 brand new Lamborghini. And I was upset about that. Because I only had enough money to buy my wife a $100,000 Ferrari. <laughs> Just kidding. But <clears throat> I was thinking about it, and if these, if these um, preachers were really legit, they wouldn't be claiming all that, that wealth for them. And the same preacher lives in a $1.8 million house. Um, they wouldn't be claiming all that wealth for themselves. What would they be doing? They'd be claiming it for their members. They'd be generous with it. But when you examine the vast majority of them, they're hoarding it. They're not sharing it. All these things creep into Christianity, and, and they, they can abide if we're not careful in our own hearts. All different aspects and elements. The new thought waters down sin. Sin isn't a big deal. I mean, there are churches out there that won't even use the word sin in any literature, their website, any message given. They won't use that word. Damnation, judgment, wrath. No. Well, what's wrong with that? Well, because the Bible talks about it. So if you don't ever talk about that, what ends up happening as you think about yourself? If you're not reminded, as, as Ryan was talking about in his exhortation to us, we need to be reminded of these things. But if we're not reminded of our sinfulness, then we can start to feel and exalt ourselves. Well, that's back to that new thought, exaltation of man. There's an evangelism book, and it has, it, I'm kind of paraphrasing, but it starts out in the intro. What if you could share the gospel with someone without mentioning sin, death, hell, wrath, or damnation? And, 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 and the book makes the argument and gives you a way to share the gospel with people without mentioning any of those things. Is that even a true gospel? It's not. Okay. People have to know what they're being saved from. They need to know that they need to be saved. That they have fallen short of God's glory. That they sinned against the perfect God. That the wages of sin is what? Death. Death. And that that's what they deserve. Then, when they see that, and they realize they cannot reach God on their own. They cannot satisfy God's wrath. They cannot become perfect in their own doing. Then, they realize they need some help. Then they realize they need a Savior. Then the good news becomes really good news. Why? Because they've already gotten the bad news. And then you give them the good news. It also downplays God, this new thought, and who he is. Which makes sense. I mean, if you already have God in you, then you don't really need a God outside of you. Because you already have him. So there's more focus on making God smaller and making man bigger. 
Here's the thing. False teachers abound. You know them by what they say, but you also know them by what they don't say. What do I mean by that? Did you know you can go to a church where the pastor doesn't believe in the Trinity, and you might not ever know it? You might not ever know it unless he preached about it and talked about it. But he can even use the term Trinity and and have a completely different meaning than the accepted definition of, of Christian when it comes to the Christian Trinity. So he can use that term. But unless he ever, unless he, he spelled it out, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, God eternally exists as three persons, and each person is fully God, and there's one God. I mean, unless he said something like that, you might not ever know. That's why, in part, it's important to define different words when they're being used so that the listeners, the people, the hearers, can understand what, what is being discussed, and so you can have a, a forthright conversation about the topic. But there are pastors out there. Even something like Jesus uh, raising from the dead. Unless they tell you what that means, now you're like, well, it's kind of obvious just by the phrase, raising from the dead, right? Now, there's, there's pastors out there that, that will say, Jesus rose from the dead. And then you say, did he physically rise from the dead? And they'll say no. And then they'll go into some new thought, esoteric, well, the, the spirit of Jesus rose and, you know, continues on, you know. Um, very, very much false, heretical. No, physical raising from the dead. But I'm telling you, there's pastors out there who believe that. They don't believe in a physical resurrection. So false teachers abound. Here's the thing. You can tell a lot about a church by what it says from the pulpit. But you can also tell a lot about a church by what it doesn't say from the pulpit. So yeah, you can go to a church and they can talk about all these great things and all these great things and all these great things and all of them can be true. But again, what if they're not mentioning things like sin, God's wrath, the need for repentance? So they're only preaching a a partial counsel of God. What did Paul say in Acts when he was getting ready to leave uh, from the, the, the Ephesian elders, what did he tell them? He's like, I am innocent of the blood of all men because I have declared to you how much counsel? The whole counsel. He declared the whole counsel of God. So everything that, that God's word said, he had declared. He wasn't holding back. I mean, imagine, imagine if, <clears throat> I mean, it's just, it's even silly to think about. Imagine him holding back. No, he declared it all. He declared it all. And, and because of that, he could say, therefore, I'm innocent because I have done my job. Listen, false teachers attack us in a variety of ways. Sometimes by using words that we think we know what they're talking about, like the Trinity, like raising from the dead. But, but they mean something completely different. Sometimes by teaching half-truths. You know, the best lie <clears throat> is a half-truth. It sounds true. There's elements that are true, but it's actually false. It's not true. But there's enough elements there that seem true that it is easy to believe. So these false teachers, they teach half-truths. They teach lies, lies about man, lies about God, lies about the world. 
And how do they masquerade? Well, look at 2 Corinthians briefly, and we'll see something here. Starting in verse 12, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 12. And what am I doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So how do they disguise themselves? Servants of righteousness. They look like the real thing. But sometimes their words reveal who they are, and sometimes their deeds, and sometimes both. A screw tape uh, said to Wormwood in C.S. Lewis's well-known book, "Old error is new. Old error in new dress is ever error, nonetheless." False teachers initially don't look false. They get you to see what's not there, or they get you to question what is there. Uh, the the great Theologian Dr. Donald Barnhouse, he wrote a, a like multi-volume commentary on the book of Romans, which is, it's really well known. But he actually tells this story that when he was a teenager, <clears throat> he and a couple of his buddies would come to some uh, crowded street corner. And um, as people were passing by, one of them would, would point up into the sky and start looking. And then the other, uh, the second one uh, would yell out, um, it is not. And then the third one would yell, it is so. And they would just keep saying that back and forth. And as they did that, people that were walking by with the person pointing, they'd stop and start looking up into the sky. And after a while, five, ten minutes, a, a, a crowd had gathered and everyone's like, what's going on? They're looking up in the sky. And eventually, uh, Barnhouse and his friends would slowly slip out of the crowd and get, you know, 25, 50 feet away and just kind of examine as more people gathered and then eventually people who had been there the longest would drift on, but then more people would gather. They thought it was a really funny thing to do. <laughs> I thought it was kind of funny myself. <laughs> but they were being tricked into trying to see something that really wasn't there or trying to see something that they thought might be there, Right? Everyone's saying, oh, there's a great commotion, something's going on, and you're trying to see something that's not actually there. That's, in a sense, what the false teachers do. They get us to try to see something that's not really there. They purport it's there, they're pointing at it, and what? It's not there. Let me ask you this. Who has ever been deceived about a matter? Everyone. Every single person on something. Maybe it was a doctrine that you believed to be true, but now realize it was a false doctrine. 
Maybe it was a person claiming to tell you the truth, but eventually you saw what it was. It was all lies. We've all been deceived at one point or another. How does it feel? Doesn't feel good, does it? Would you rather have continued in that deceitfulness? No? Or would you rather find out, even though it can be frustrating and hurtful? I mean, I'd rather find out, right? We don't want to be taken captive. The description back in Colossians, it shows how it occurs. What happens? When you fall under a false teaching, the description used here and the imagery that we're given is that of being taken captive. You're under bondage to that belief. And so what do we need to do? We need to pray. And I pray it regularly. Lord, show me anywhere I might be deceived. Make it apparent. And then, other, and then the other thing is, is like when brothers and sisters correct you, when they come to correct you, like you need to receive that and think about it and consider it. Because a lot of times, I think there are people that are around you that know you're being duped, that know you're being fooled, that know you're believing some false teaching, that know you're believing lies from someone, but they don't think you'd listen to them. And so they don't come and tell you. They can see you walking in that deception, yet they know you won't heed the warning that they have. Now, maybe they should give it anyway. That's a different sermon. But they don't come. Why? Because they know you're not going to listen. So we need to be a people that are willing to listen and hear and receive. Just correction and rebuke in general, but specifically on this issue, if someone thinks that we're thinking wrong, then let's, let's hear it. Let's receive it. Let's think on it. The, the, the thing you can always do, if someone comes and, you're, and you disagree, I mean, you know, just turn down the temperature of your blood boiling first, okay? Because, every, you know, a lot of people tend to get bent out of shape. But you can, even if you don't disagree, you can, you can just graciously say, hey, I appreciate you coming to me. I will give that some thought. And then you should. You should give before the Lord and pray. If people generally don't, and they should, but if people generally don't go to brothers and sisters, and correct them, then when someone does come to you, that means like they're, they're kind of going out on a limb because they're probably not wanting to most of the time. They're not wanting to, but they love you enough and they see the danger that you're going in. They see the, the sin that you're wrapped up in and so they go out of love and come and approach you and talk to you. And I'm sure they're probably going to, in your eyes, totally mess it up when they do that. Okay. You're already walking in the sin. So receive it. And yeah, uh, most people don't receive correction well, and most people maybe aren't the best at giving the correction. But we still got to receive it. Matthew 16, right? If anyone sees their brother in sin, we're supposed to go to him. We're supposed to go to him. And so every church, in that sense, is hopefully practicing a church discipline of sorts, where we're going to one another, we love each other enough that we're willing to correct, lovingly correct, graciously correct, all right? You got to make sure that you're not walking around. I was in a situation recently, a couple weeks ago, uh, listening, and 
it was clear that, 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 that the person, they weren't correcting me, but the person had the log in their eye. Well, yeah, when you have the log in your eye and you're correcting someone about the speck, they're not going to receive that. You got to take the log out, as Jesus said. Make sure you're not guilty. Make sure <clears throat> that you can come before that person with a contrite spirit, with a broken heart, with true love. What am I trying to get at here? Listen, brothers and sisters, the church, which is the body, like God has been gracious to us to give us his word. And, and the pastors are to oversee the church and protect it from the false teachers and the wolves. But also, if there's giftings that have been given, like by sticking true to the adherence of the scriptures and what it says, it is a protection unto itself where we're looking out for others and you have relationships with people and you're ministering to those people and you see them getting off in some doctrine and you love them enough to go talk to them. Maybe it's something I don't even know about. Maybe it's something I'm, I'm not aware of. And God's put you in that place to lovingly correct. So we don't want to be taken, we don't want to be taken captive. Why do we resist these things? Why do we reject being taken captive? Why, because we're, we're taken captive for some reason. Some aspect of our flesh really likes what's going on there. Why? Why do we resist? Because Jesus is greater. That's what Paul's going to get at as we go into these next few verses next week. We resist, and we're not taken captive, and we don't give in to the false teachings of the new thought or the Gnosticism from back then, which is actually very similar. I mean... <clears throat> there's, there's no new heresy. The Gnosticism that Paul was dealing with is essentially the new age and the new thought that we're dealing with today. Just a different flavor, you know? Just a different color dress. Same basic concept and ideas. So why resist? Well, part of the answer we get right there for us in verse 9 and 10. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So we don't need the philosophy and empty deceit. Why? Because we have the fullness of Jesus himself. We don't need anything else. We've got Jesus. We have the real thing. We don't need anything else because Jesus is in control. You have been filled in him, verse 10. If you're truly filled, then you are truly satisfied. I mean, today we, we, took, we took the bread and the wine. We took communion together. Now, did that fill anybody up? No, it's not meant to. <clears throat> but it symbolizes what? It symbolizes quite a few things. But one thing it should symbolize is when you come to dine with Jesus, guess what? Great satisfaction is there. Sometimes you go out with maybe a friend, a best friend you haven't seen in a few weeks, maybe even a few months, and you get to go out to dinner with them or hang out. And, I mean, there's, there's a satisfaction in that, in hanging out. It brings a satisfaction. It brings a happiness. It brings a joy. Guess what? How much more so with our Savior Jesus? When we get, to, we get to fellowship with him, when we get to dine with him, that's one of the things it symbolizes. So our satisfaction, it doesn't have to be in anything else. It doesn't have to be in the pursuit of sin or fleshly desires. Why? Because Jesus is enough. He is enough. So we can reject the false teaching. Why? Because we have the real thing. And it's Jesus. You don't have to add anything to Jesus. You don't need anything else but Jesus 
to be satisfied. You don't have to add anything to Jesus to be satisfied. You don't need elements from philosophy or aspects from, from Greek thought. No, you've got Jesus. The real Jesus, then you're satisfied. And guess what? Each one of us needs Jesus. We need the real Jesus. The only one there is. The real one. And he, we find out here that he is the head of all rule and authority. So he has it all. He owns it all. He is over all. Jesus is Lord of all. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So Jesus and Jesus alone satisfies. Listen, all these other things, they leave you empty. They will leave you empty. Will they satisfy for a season? Yeah, maybe. But they'll leave you empty. And it's a horrible emptiness to feel. Jesus alone gives the full satisfaction. Why? Because he meets the very need that you have. All these other things that you're doing, you're really just trying to, to satisfy the, the one true need that you have, and that's to be reconciled to God. And only Jesus can do that. And when you have that, when you've been reconciled to the Father, when that brokenness has been made whole again, when Jesus comes down, when the Father regenerates you, when you have the Spirit of God living in you, when you have forgiveness of sins, Brothers and sisters, that's a very satisfying thing. There's much satisfaction to know that you are made right with God, to walk in that wholeness, to have that with you. Not just like today, but forever. Now here's what happens to the believers. You end up losing that satisfaction. It's still there. It's still yours. You've been satisfied, but, but you get tempted by other things. And so believers can fall into all sorts of sin. Why? Because they stop being satisfied by Jesus, even though he's more than enough. And it's like you forget, which is why we need to be reminded, but you forget that the satisfaction comes from Jesus and Jesus alone. So you try to find it in different things. Sometimes you can try to find it in good things. A wife is a good thing. A husband is a good thing. But can you make an idol out of your wife or husband? Yeah. I know people that have. It's sad. And idols always fail. And idols don't satisfy you put your wife or your husband into a situation or a position where they're the ones that have to fully satisfy you, they're going to fail at times. Sometimes because of them, sometimes because of you. So yeah, good things we can try to make. A family is a good thing. Having children is a good thing. We can make idols out of our children. We can uh, try to live our lives through them. It's not going to satisfy. Maybe for a season, but it won't. But those are good things that we can turn into idols. But then there's also sinful things. You know, pornography, sexual immorality, gossip, slander, lying, adultery, all those things. Those are just wrong, flat out wrong. We can make idols out of them too. They will never satisfy. Again, maybe for a season. But sin, when it, when it carries itself out, always leads in disappointment. It always leads in frustration. It always leads in hurt and bitterness. So if that's you, come, come back. If you've been walking good with the Lord, but you've lost the satisfaction, you're being reminded today that the satisfaction is found in Jesus. He is more than enough. He is your everything, right? He is our all in all. So we come to him. Our, our reminder, just like we're coming forward, we're coming to the table here. 
That's the reminder. That's one of the things it's reminding of, of who we have fellowship with. And yeah, I mean, this is just a, a, a foretaste of the feast to come in heaven when we'll dine with Jesus and be with him forever. So our satisfaction comes from him. Anything else will leave us dissatisfied. It will leave us empty. It will leave us discontent. If you've been struggling with that, it's because you forgot to get your satisfaction from Jesus. It's you forgot that he's the one that provides it. And you've been looking for, you've been looking for it in other places. Those places will always fall short and disappoint. So come back to Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, then you need to come to know him for the first time. And you need to trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. It is through him and him only. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. So true life is found only in Jesus. True satisfaction is only found in Jesus. You can be content only in Jesus. The longing of your heart that God places in every single person, only Jesus satisfies that. He wants to be your all in all. If you're walking with him and you've forgotten that, then today, brothers and sisters, let's commit to making sure we are satisfied with Jesus. Any idols that we've set up, whether they're family, work, or whatever, we put them back in their proper place. Any idols that need to be crushed and and toppled over, idols of sin and sexual immorality and gossip and lying, we just knock them over completely. And we get right back with God. We get on our faces and we confess our sin. And what is God quick to do? If we confess our sin, he is what? Righteous and just, and he forgives our sin. So come back to the Father. Come back to the Father. Restore the freshness of your relationship with him again. Let's pray. Father, I pray for anyone here today who doesn't know you, that they would know that they can find true hope and joy in your son Jesus. And even though the world offers all sorts of elements and variants of that, that true lasting joy only comes from your son. And that they can be forgiven of their sins, that the wrath that your justice requires be poured out upon them can be averted because of what your son did for them on the cross, paid for their sins. And we thank you, Jesus, that you rose from the dead. You physically rose from the dead. That you had victory over the grave. That you defeated death. And Father, I pray for brothers and sisters here. Maybe they've been finding their satisfaction in other ways and other things. Bring them back to you. Remind them of the sweetness of having fellowship with you. Remind them of the sweetness of dining with you, of the fellowship we have with you seen through the Lord's Supper. And Father, I ask you to touch each of our hearts, soften them to receive your truths. Soften our hearts, Father, so that when people come and, and they see us maybe wandering away from the truth, that, that we would receive it, that we'd hear it. Lord, open up our eyes. I pray for each person here. 
that might be deceived in an area. Open up their spiritual eyes to see it. Whatever is not of you, they'd cast off. Whatever false doctrine has crept in, you'd show them that and they'd cast it aside. Thank you, Father, that you are good to do that for your children. We love you. We ask your blessing upon us, Lord, as we continue to seek you. Do your work in us, Lord, and through us. Amen.